Welcome to Stewart Observatory uh, on uh, this uh, day that might be clear. We don't know. I'll let you know at the conclusion of tonight's lecture whether the telescope will be open. It looked too cloudy when I first got here, but now it seems to be clearing up. So um, today our speaker is going to address a topic which has been in the news recently. And um, it's part of the mission of the observatory to educate the public. And uh, there are a lot of very misleading things being shared in the press regarding um, objects that are supposedly unidentified seen in the sky. So we invited our friend, James McGahey, who is our sort of local skeptic and UFO investigator to talk about the current situation. Major McGahey received his bachelor's degree from Georgia Tech. And you also have a master's as well in business and also a master's in astronomy from the University of Arizona. And your bachelor's degree is psychology, I believe. And he is a longtime veteran of the United States Air Force, a pilot. Uh, he has uh, flown many missions and had many sorts of uh, responsibilities for the Air Force, which I guess we're not allowed to actually know about. Um, but he now currently, together with Dr. Tim Hunter, run their own observatory down by Sonoida, the Grasslands Observatory. He spends a lot of time following up transient objects, discovering asteroids and comets, near-Earth asteroids. That's what he does on the astronomy side. But he also spends a lot of time investigating claims of the paranormal, which also includes unidentified flying objects. So without further ado, we will- Can I click this off? <laughs> yeah, go ahead and say, got it. Huh? Yeah, you have to say, oh, you have yeah, to, I just you have to make have- sure we're not tearing yeah. something up here. Okay, great. So Major McGahey. Thank you. Uh, this whole story about chasing UFOs is a uh, fairly intricate one, and it just got more more complex in the last few years. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but it's I'm going to have to go pretty fast because it's very complicated. Just so you know, I am a retired United States Air Force pilot. I held a top secret SCI security clearance. I did a number of things, including flying and working at Area 51, so-called. The Air Force has never called it that. But more importantly, I'm speaking only for myself and not for the United States Air Force. When we talk about this issue, we have to talk about what we're really trying to say, and it gets rather convoluted. If we're gonna have flying saucers, we need intelligent life and we need it to be here. And of course, there's different kinds of life, including machine life, which uh, we don't have yet. But the term UFO, unidentified flying object, has become synonymous with alien spacecraft the original term was not that, it was flying saucer. I think a better term, instead of UFO or unidentified aerial phenomena, is unidentified absurd flim-flam, which is what this whole subject is. And which kind of aliens we're talking about, we're not talking about microbes, we're talking about intelligent life here. And all intelligent life out there may not be so friendly, and it may not even be biological. This whole thing more or less revolves around the search for meaning. The sky has always been magical. It's a far away, powerful, eclipses and comets were mysterious things and gods and aliens were synonymous. 
In today's thinking among UFO believers, they believe many things about aliens, that they can be many different things, angels, devils, time travelers, interdimensional beings. And the extraterrestrial hypothesis is one that most believers tend to go to. hypothesis that aliens are here must mean that they have to exist. Therefore, they have to have the technology and the interstellar travel and the ability to get here. And if they do get here, many people think they're either coming for salvation or doom of the planet. And the believers fall into a number of different categories. Most of them fall into the category of general believers who believe this casually. Today, 44% of the US public believes that aliens are here flying around in our atmosphere right now. And then you, the, the various other strange things, contactees, abductees, a whole bunch of conspiracy nuts, and then, of course, you have the religions, the Space Brothers, uh, back in the 1950s, uh, and then more recently, the cults, Heaven's Gate, and Scientology, which I was directly involved with at one point, unfortunately. Some of them decided to depart this world, uh, claiming it was because of me. Uh, and then, of course, the doom from above. The claims of evidence are in the physical evidence and the sightings. And all of these things have been claimed over the years, none of which have ever proven to, prove, proven to be anything other than uh, misidentifications and wishful thinking. What has happened more recently is popular culture, media, and in particular science fiction has, getting, has evolved into this whole subject. And myth, magic, and superstition have become a big part of it. Lucian was a Greek uh, satirist who liked to ridicule superstition and religion and wrote books and he wrote the very first technically science fiction book ever written about uh, outer space and interplanetary warfare. It was called The True Story. It was a very popular book. In the beginning, it says that it's not at all true and it's a complete and utter lie. But he promised to write a sequel, which people really wanted at the time, and then he's, it turns out that that was probably the biggest lie that he told. He, severe, he it definitely influenced Voltaire, Jules Verne, and H.G. Wells. Voltaire, of course, was a French writer, historian, and philosopher, and advocated free speech and civil liberties, interesting enough. And he had said, if there's life on other planets, then the Earth is the universe's insane asylum. And there might be something to be said for that. Uh, this is a very famous uh, drawing of Voltaire writing with Isaac Newton uh, doing a spectrum in the heavens. And he wrote uh, these two books, uh, Micromedus and Plato's Dream, and about traveling aliens and about the philosophy and criticism of religion, he often said, prejudices are what fools use for reason and common sense is not so common. But H.E. Wells, of course, in the modern era, was a British writer, futurist, and utopianist who worked with science fiction. And his most famous work that we think about in science fiction is War of the Worlds in 1898, in which, uh, Martians come to Earth 
and try to kill us all. And it's interesting, his talking about aliens, the way they would scrutinize us is to study us in a microscope as transient creatures in a multiple drop of water. And the book was very popular in 1898, but it's not what became really popular and how it became popular. It became popular in this publication, Amazing Stories, which ties to the modern era of UFOs. This was 1927 and he's amazing story serialized War of the Worlds. And what happened was there were a lot of attacks on science. And this is from uh, Isaac Asimov writing in, in about Velikovsky about endoheretics and exoheretics. Indo-heretics being the heretics uh, within science itself that evoke strange and non-scientific ideas, and exo-heretics are pseudoscience and the postmodernist philosophers who critique science. And he's, these are some of his ideas about, uh, for instance, pseudoscience, astrology, UFOs, aliens. Whereas in Indo-heretics or unorthodox ideas, which a number of scientists have advocated about UFOs over the years. But this is what began the whole story of UFOs. This was amazing stories in 1945. It was a science fiction magazine. And the magazine itself had been recently taken over by a new editor named Ray Palmer. And Palmer was more interested in uh, real events rather than science fiction. So he took a story that was sent to the magazine and for two years advocated as being real. The story was about aliens who had come to earth, good aliens and bad aliens, and they were here telepathically transmitting through a welding machine, as you see on the cover here, to tell humans what to do or not to do. And then Ray Palmer got fired from Amazing Stories for advocating uh, pseudoscience and formed his own magazine, Fate Magazine. Ray Palmer's on the right here. And the very first magazine issue and uh, is a story of Arnold Palmer, uh, Ar <laughs> Kenneth Arnold, um, who on 24 June, 1947, saw nine particular objects flying near Mount Rainier. He created this and wrote it into uh, a story that he later wrote as a book. And this started the whole UFO phenomenon. But Ray Palmer didn't stop there. He created almost everything you think about, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, all of these things he coined first and promoted this for years in the 1950s. And then in 19, early 1948, there had been a few stories. The start of UFOs was Kenneth Arnold, not Roswell. Uh, and because of these stories, uh, the military had become interested in it. And on 7 January 1948, Captain Mantell saw a bright object in the sky. He was flying a P-51 with no oxygen on board. And he climbed above 30,000 feet while chasing this object, got hypoxia, passed out and went into a flat spin and crashed and was, was killed. But this is what he was chasing. He was chasing a skyhook balloon, which was at 120,000 feet and a little bit above 
the altitude that he could have climbed to. But this is an example of seeing an object that's not what you think it is. As a result of this, a top secret memorandum was created in the intelligence department at uh, the time blended between Army and Air Force and to study UFO reports and determine their tactics and the probability of their existence. And they were referring more to Soviet and Chinese weapons. And I will say tonight that, as you're going to see, intelligence agencies and intel analysis uh, people are not people you should trust. Uh, it has caused problems throughout uh, the military's issues over time. There are now 17 intel agencies in the federal government, 17 different ones. So what happened was they formed Project Blue Book. It was, a re it was designed to look at reporting, identification, detection, and destruction, assuming it was a hostile uh, military action. It was not designed to do scientific investigations or to look for ET. Everybody thinks that Project Blue Book was this huge program. This is the Air Technical Intel Center at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in the 1950s. Blue Book occupied two rooms of the second story of this building. Blue Book started out as Project Sign for one year, became Project Grudge, and then Blue Book, it looked at 12,618 reports over the 22 years. 701 were unidentified, but it was mostly because they didn't have enough information to do an analysis. During that time, this magazine, which was one of the top magazines in the country at the time of life, did a 30-page expose on UFOs. And this was one of the largest selling magazines of all time. And you can see, you know, there was a case for interplanetary saucers. That's why it sold so well. I bet you be the judge. Uh, so the, uh, what happened then was in 1953, the CIA went to the Air Force and wanted to do an investigation and create a panel called the Roberson Panel. Roberson was a very famous physicist who headed up the panel. And the Blue Book people, along with the CIA, sponsored this meeting. And CIA was concerned about PSYOPs. In other words, not alien spacecraft, but Soviet disinformation. And it might create mass hysteria. As a result, they were very concerned about clogging communications channels, or, uh, and they wanted to train people to identify what was real and not, and train people to recognize false indicators. The conclusion of this panel, which was classified, uh, was to look at this matter and determine if there was any reason to believe that this was real and they found none. So perhaps one of the most brilliant things that the CIA recommended but never executed was they wanted to set up an education campaign of critical thinking and rational thinking to minimize the risk of panic or false non-threatening information. At the time, Donald Menzel, chairman of the Harvard astronomy department was the most prominent skeptic in the world on the air, uh, on UFOs. He was a very famous astrophysicist and he wrote the first three books on UFOs. 
uh, uh, pointing out that there were mostly hoaxes, optical illusions, um, various phenomena. And he was also implicated in a hoax that was very elaborate called Majestic 12 to after he had died, which was a total scam and discredit. They actually put documents in the National Archives in the classified section. Uh, some UFO people, I think I knew who do it, did it. And then, of course, we have Dr. J. Edel Heineck, who was the most famous skeptic in the world while he was consulting to the U.S. Air Force Blue Book Project. And he was only a consultant. He was a paid consultant. And then when he was fired for doing things he shouldn't have been doing and talking to the press in ways he shouldn't be, he uh, started his own UFO organization, KUFOS, in 1973. He was the one, of course, came up with the concept of close encounters of the various kinds, the first kind, second kind, third kind, and fourth kind. But what was not known at the time was he was a believer in mysticism and the occult since he, he was a teenager. And he later on said that UFOs are psychic projections created by extra dimensional intelligence in some parallel, parallel reality. Uh, obviously not a very scientific statement. Here at the University of Arizona, James E. McDonnell, that's him looking out the window of the physics department. He was an atmospheric physicist. He committed suicide in 1971, largely because of this subject. Uh, he was a big believer in UFOs and promoted it. But my biggest critique of what he did was he planted secret agents inside the Condon report to dig up dirt on scientists trying to evaluate this for the United States Air Force. It was a real shame. Edwin Condon was a very interesting man. He was uh, the first uh, American quantum mechanic physicist. Uh, he was at University of Colorado. He had been head of the National Bureau of Standards. He took on the report that the Air Force commissioned to evaluate the sightings of Blue Book. And by doing this, he would say, taking on this was the biggest mistake of my life. There was no, no, no scientific knowledge to be gained, no hazard to national security. And it was a two-year study, which was reviewed by the National Academy of Sciences. The review, uh, the findings were that there was no secrecy, uh, there was no threat to national security, no need for US Air Force to handle the reports, no federal agency needed, and social scientists should study this, not physical scientists. And the National the Air Force sent the report after it was done to the National Academy of Sciences to review. And needless to say, the head of National, uh, National Academy of Sciences says, this report deserves to be a landmark in the journey of science has taken since the days of Galileo and Kepler. So in 1969, the report comes out, no findings of advanced technology, no national security, no extraterrestrial vehicles. And that UFOs are the least likely possibility in intelligent beings visiting the Earth. At that point, the entire Blue Book files were moved from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The commander of the Blue Book, got on an airplane with all the files, 27 file cabinets, and flew Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama to turn them over to the historic division there. They would later be transferred to the National Archives for permanent storage. 
This ended the U.S. Air Force maintaining of these worthless records, and that's what Lieutenant Colonel Pantilius said about them. Now I want to get into this whole question about intelligent uh, technology. Obviously, you have to have it if it's visiting the Earth. And Fermi's paradox was one of the first things said about this in 1950. Fermi had, was sitting around the table with a number of very famous physicists in New Mexico when he said, if there's so many intelligent civilizations out there, why don't we have any evidence of it? Where are they? And of course, this paradox has been tried to be, to be answered by many different ways. Frank Drake created a Drake equation, which is in fact a Fermi equation. Fermi's equations, he had come up with the idea of how to approximate the answer by using probabilities rather than actual numbers, if you didn't know the numbers. And Drake was attempting to determine how many technological civilizations might be in the galaxy at this point that could actually transmit with radio signals. And you can see the various probability, the only number in here that was actually known very well was the number of stars that were being created each year in the galaxy, which was approximately 20. The rest of them are probabilities what fraction of stars have planets and so forth. And you can put various numbers in here and come up with thousands of radio technologies or one. So it's an estimation. But Drake, of course, was behind SETI originally trying to send out the first signal in 1960 uh, to a globular cluster in the sky to determine if perhaps we can then start to listen to the sky to see if we hear any transmissions from alien civilizations. Then in, 19, in 2000, the rare earth equation came along, another Fermi equation. This equation attempts to determine how many, how many Earth-like planets would have developed complex life. And again, if you look at this, because of the factors involved, the number is probably fairly small. I am more interested in how many of them have actually come to Earth. So back in 2007, I came up with my equation, which is the number of technological civilizations there are actual interstellar travelers to Earth, which is what we have to have if we're going to talk about alien spacecraft. It turns out, if you put the numbers in, you get some rather small results. If there are 10 technological civilizations that can travel interstellar, the likelihood from a pessimistic standpoint, would be 10 to the minus 25th that one of them has ever visited the Earth. You want to be optimistic with 100 in the galaxy, it's just 10 to the minus 14th. Needless to say, it's highly unlikely that any technological civilization has ever visited the Earth. But the paradox is, why do so many people believe they are? And the solution, of course, is not in science and physics, but in psychology, in the belief in myth, magic, and superstition, instead of a rational view of the world. So the Earth is very, very unlikely has ever been visited. Now, there's some other problems that get into the astrophysics nature. When you talk about special relativity, you can't just go any velocity. There is a speed limit. It's called the speed of light. 
And as you approach it, some strange things happen. Mass increases towards infinity. It takes inner, infinite energy to propel you faster. And of course, time slows down. Should be remember, space-time tells matter how to move, but matter tells space-time how to curve, and all physics is local. And the speed of light is absolute. And this is a fundamental unifier of space-time. As a perspective, the fastest thing humans have ever created, Voyager 1, is now traveling at 0.00059% the speed of light. It takes 72,000 years to get to the nearest star. And this, uh, talking about energy, the total energy output of human culture, all energy, all burning of wood, coal, oil, nuclear, all the nuclear bombs combined is 4.3 times 10 to the 22nd joules. The sun produces 10,000 times that amount of energy every second as a comparison. So if you wanted a starship, say the size of of the Queen Victoria, about a million kilograms, and you wanted to get, go somewhere and come back, it's going to take a considerable amount of energy. We're talking about energy of the stars. It would take 3.26 hours of solar energy output, 50 trillion kilograms of hydrogen being converted to helium to push it that size ship, 10% the speed of light. It's a rather large number. As you get up closer to the speed of light, the number goes up to 57,000 trillion kilograms of hydrogen converted into helium. That's 72 billion times the total human production and all of our energy production and all of our existence. So interstellar travel would be very difficult. And the distances are vast and life support systems would be closed. And remember when you travel between the stars, there's nothing there but a few hydrogen molecules. So if you don't take it with you, you don't have it. Now, wormholes have been in science fiction. And of course, Einstein was the one who originally came up with the idea. It was called Einstein, Rosen Bridges in 1935. Wheeler really coined the term wormholes. This theoretical idea that you could shortcut space time by traveling through one. They're very strange ideas. They don't exist in the universe naturally, so far as we know, and a number of speculative ideas have been proposed about it. You have to have things like negative energy to create one. This is a sci-fi uh, idea. It's not real physics. And of course, interstellar travel would be very hard because of the vacuum, the weightlessness, micrometeorites, interstellar radiation, and of course, the time. And you need shielding for all of this. And that's more mass. So the hunt, of course, by believers in UFOs has been on for finding things in the sky. For the military, it was always about Russian and Chinese threats. For intel agencies, as you will see, it was always about strange and extreme things. And for the believers, the promoters and con men, it was always about aliens. Now I'm gonna talk a little bit about what's happened in recent years to cause the 
exotic claims being made today. Between 1969 and 1975, J. Allen Heinick and Jacques Vallée, a French student, graduate student who had come to Northwestern University to study computer science, became a student of Heinick, and together they started to evolve into this idea of the invisible college and the occult. Um, this was not largely known in public or to UFO believers, and they were promoting the ideas of ghosts, poltergeists, supernatural, psychic phenomena, interdimensional, and extra-dimensional hypothesis. At this time, Heine had contacted someone at SRI, the Stanford Research, Research Institute, who was investigating psychics. He was a PhD physicist, um, but he didn't do very much physics, and is still around today. Harold Putoff and Jacques Vallée uh, have tremendous influence on what's going on right now, as I will point out. So in 1975 to 95, Harold Putoff had gotten SRI to get contracts with the intel agencies to investigate psychics, remote viewing, to try to get military intelligence out of Russia through psychics visualizing what the military intelligent analysts in Russia were thinking. This resulted in the idea, and of course they tested Yuri Geller, the psychic magician who, and claimed that he was actually real and was doing what he was doing. And if you've heard of the movie, but there was a book about it, The Man Who, the men who stared at goats, they went on for 20 years trying to get psychics to do various things, uh, trying to get goats to go to sleep and other things. But in the end, they tried to contact dead Martians that were living there a million years ago. Finally, somebody in the intelligence agencies ended all of this. It was called Projects, uh, Stargate Project. In 1995, Putoff had left um, doing these projects for DIA and CIA. DIA is a defense intelligence agency. Uh, and he went to work for Robert Bigelow. Robert Bigelow is a very strange person. He's a Las Vegas billionaire who made billions in hotels. He founded the National Institute for Discovery Sciences to study fringe science, paranormal, the UFO, uh, UFOlogy, space aliens, life after death, skinwalkers. This is a strange spiritual kind of alien, werewolves, and interdimensional beings. I'm not kidding. And he has a interesting political connections we'll talk about here in a second. And then he purchased the Skinwalker Ranch, 480 acres in Las Vegas, outside Las Vegas, where he set up stands for people to go out and try to see aliens and werewolves and interdimensional alien shift shapers that he thought existed. And they did this for a number of years. They didn't find anything. Bigelow also has a very large hangar or warehouse where he stores alien artifacts, none of which have ever been seen by anybody, but he claims they're there. Then in 2005, Bigelow requested the FAA report all UFO reports to his own Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies program, and they would refer any call about a UFO to, Big, to Bigelow's phone number. Then in 2006, Bigelow created an occult team 
with Christopher Mellon, who had been a deputy secretary of state for Intel, who has some strange ideas. But what really took off in 2007, Bigelow got Harry Reid to get the Pentagon within the DIA to create a program, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which was to sort of look for uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, not UFOs, but it got rather bizarre fairly quickly. He also pulled $22 million out of the defense budget and essentially gave it to Bigelow for use in his alien uh, artifact warehouse. And it did a whole bunch of other things that were fairly ridiculous. This was in DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency. And it, the program existed from 2007 to 2012 and was finally closed by somebody who recognized that the military shouldn't be doing this. Then comes along Tom DeLonge, a punk rocker in the Blink-182 band who forms in 2017 to the STARS Academy of Arts and Sciences with co-founder Al Putoff. He releases, and I don't know how he got a hold of them, the F-18 videos that claim to be show extraterrestrial craft. He made a movie unidentified with the History Channel fairly a couple of years ago. And he is a rather strange individual again, very much into the occult. And then we have a so-called journalist, Leslie Kane, who's written a book about UFOs and generals in South America, seeing UFOs, which all turned out to be bugs flying in front of the camera. So she's a real expert on this. Uh, she had connections with the New York Times and she wrote an article 16 December 2017 in the New York Times about AATIP and the F-18 Navy videos. And ever since then, it's been uh, very interesting because this lent this whole story credibility. Now, she didn't mention, although she knew all these occult things going on, particularly with Bigelow, she didn't mention it in the article, but this is what started the whole phenomena more recently. And then within the DIA, we have Luis Elizondo, who wrote a letter resigning from his uh, intel analyst post in DIA because there was too much secrecy around UFOs and he demanded the Secretary of Defense immediately release all the records. Of course, there aren't any. And he has since made many false statements about claiming he was the head of this and so forth, which are all untrue. But he's become a very big promoter and TV, movie, movie deals and a new book deal. And now, since he quit from uh, DIA, he's now gone to work for Bigelow. Oh, I might also, also ask that Leslie Kane has gone to work for Bigelow as well. And she now has given up on UFOs. She's now doing seances with Bigelow's approval. So then, because of all this in the New York Times, Senator Marco Rubio demands a new unidentified aerial phenomena program and report within the Pentagon. And just uh, recently, Showtime did a four-part series made by J.J. Abrams about this whole mess, almost none of which 
is true. And now more recently, the Galileo project has recently been announced, started by Abby Loeb, who is, was the head of the Harvard-Smithsonian Astrophysical Department, astrophysicist there, because he saw an asteroid flying by and he thought it was a light sail from an alien civilization. There's no evidence of this, but he thought that. And now he wants to have a systematic search for evidence of extraterrestrial technology, technological artifacts. Uh, so he's raising money for this project now, and it will be to look at ground-based cameras looking at the sky, orbital cameras looking at the sky, and to send spacecraft to anything that might be an alien artifact to go look at it. This is nothing but speculative, fix, uh, speculative science. It's bizarre. He's been writing an article every month in Scientific American about aliens and what should we do if they show up? Uh, how can we be nice to them so they won't kill us, etc. I mean, it's really strange to say the least. He also doesn't seem to understand for the last 70 years that astronomy and the military have been looking at the sky and have never seen anything that wasn't natural or human technology. Now, this is what started all of this, uh, getting excited about. There was these three Navy F-18 videos. FLARE stands for forward-looking infrared. What these are, are showing, and I should show you here. Uh, this is the object right here. This is the bars to capture the object to lock on. The little thing here you're seeing here is the representation of the aircraft. The bar here represents the angle of bank. So this is level flight, this is bank, and this is bank. Uh, now infrared is very low resolution. This is far infrared. And it detects differential heat. It's not really very well done. None of these videos, they, did they have any kind of rangefinder system locked on when they saw this? And this was in a military operating area about 50 miles off the California coast where these F-18s were flying. They become known as the FLAR video, the gimbal video, and the go fast video. Uh, they don't show anything. I mean, you're basically seeing a light in the sky because this is so low, low, low resolution. Most of what you're seeing here is not real. This glow is an artifact of blooming and other things astronomers are very familiar with. Uh, uh, and you're seeing, and these things are relative distance. What are these? Well, almost certainly this is a distant commercial aircraft. This is a uh, distant commercial aircraft. And what you're seeing here, you'll notice these two are black. You can turn what's hot, either white or black. Um, this is the two engines on the aircraft, probably about 40 miles away, a commercial jet. Here, the gimbal is interesting because the gimbal is the functional adapter on the front uh, mounted under the uh, F-18, which locks on here with the infrared, but it tracks the target. So the aircraft is banking this way. The target is moving this way. The gimbal is tracking it. And when it tracks through the nose of the aircraft, the whole thing rotates 180 degrees, which is why this one is rotating. It has nothing to do with the object. It has to do with the gimbal itself. And so what, like I say, this is a distance aircraft. This is a distant aircraft. 
This says a lot about our Navy pilots. This is a balloon. They're saying it's going supersonic. <laughs> it's not. So we have a lot of causes for lights in the sky. Uh, astronomical objects all the way to aircraft, atmospherics, mirages, and hoaxes. I've seen many of them over the years. Uh, too numerous to say. I have many thousands of hours looking at the night sky. I've been struck by lightning eight times, up close and personal, seven in the aircraft, once on the ground. I've seen ball lightning and seen animals fire. It's very interesting to see uh, in the middle of a thunderstorm, but not very pleasant. <laughs> so if we have aliens here today, why haven't they taken over the government, the news media, the scientific organizations and military bases and enslaved the population? Of course, they have not. And this, of course, would be the greatest conspiracy of all time because all these agencies would know about it and they've said nothing. Robert Preissler has said that belief in, in aliens and UFOs probably qualifies as a religion because when one person suffers a delusion, it's called insanity. When many people suffer a delusion, it's called religion. The UFO case is based on anecdotal stories, misidentifications, misrepresentations, and hoaxes and bogus documents. Astronomers have shown very little evidence, of very little interest in alien visitation simply because there's no empirical evidence, there's no phenomena to study. Many of the reports violate the laws of physics, it's controversial, and of course, it's just plain silly. Astronomers, however, do accept the idea of extraterrestrial intelligence because of big number statistics and the mediocrity principle. But we have a sample of one, the Earth, and no other data. I, I contend that this is faulty logic and nothing but speculation. There are many possibilities about extraterrestrial civilizations that there may be many, they may be short-lived, they may have gone extinct. We may be, in fact, the first. We could, in fact, be alone. And of course, if they did come, what would they want? Almost certainly it would not be anything good for us. They more than likely would want resources and a clean planet. These lights are nothing but misrepresentations and misinterpretations of using the human bias, individual bias and belief systems with confabulation involved. You should not wish necessarily for aliens to show up because they may not be bearing the gift you want. I don't know if you've seen this twilight zone, but this is an alien that shows up at the UN with a book and they don't know how to read it, but they finally translate the title of the book, To Serve Man. And then the aliens are carrying all the humans back to their home planet for a visit. And one of the intel people from the military comes running up to her partner as he's getting on the flying saucer to fly to the home planet and says, the book, To Serve Man, it's a cookbook. Are we alone? Well, maybe. The alien UFO hypothesis, this is a 75-year-old story wrapped in conspiracy theories inside a myth held together by magic and superstition telling a fairy tale. It's a compelling question. The answer, we do not know. We do know there is no evidence. We do know that interstellar travel will be difficult. Thank you very much.
Turn up the lights here and we'll begin with questions from the audience while I go and see if there are any questions in the chat on Zoom. Do we have any questions from the audience? All right. Well, let me bring you the microphone. There you go. I was just wondering why they emphasis or the expense for all the dishes that are out in New Mexico, uh, since uh, there is no real evidence that uh, they would be <laughs> finding anything. I'm not quite sure I understood what he was asking. Oh, well, uh, I'm thinking of the, you, you showed a picture of the the uh, large dishes that are in New Mexico, they were featured in the film Contact, First Contact, and I was kind of going, why do we fund something that really has no structural purpose? Uh -uh. I think he's referring to the very large array, the VLA, oh. but that's used for astrophysical research. It's oh. not listening for aliens, right? It's no, used yes. That, that, oh, you're okay. You're talking about the, the very large array. That is a radio telescope and it's used for studying radio waves. Now, SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Technological Intelligence, uses radio telescopes to look at the sky and try to see if there's an alien scattered radio frequency out there. And they've been doing this for Drake started in 1960. It's seriously been done for about the last 20 years with modern technology. They've never found anything. Now, there's a caveat on that. They probably can only go out a couple of thousand light years for detection. The signal would be too weak for their system beyond that. But there are a lot of stars within 2,000 light years of the Earth, and none of them are transmitting radio signals. I don't seem to see any questions on chat. Do we have any other questions here from the audience? Yeah. I'll grab you and then I'll come to you. Yes, so I was just kind of curious. So the, uh, those last videos, they were supposedly from F-18s. Um, I mean, are the videos themselves authentic or, I mean, I, I know Navy personnel, they can, be pretty good at pulling practical jokes. I figure they were just tweaking the electronic equipment, you know. I'm, I'm hard of hearing. I got hearing aids in, but sometimes I can't quite understand. He wants to know if those F-18 videos were authentic. Yeah. Were they authentic? Or could someone the, maybe have been playing a practical joke? No, no, the, 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 it turns out that the videos were authentic. Uh, the, chain of custody on it is a little dicey. It's a little difficult to explain all this, but um, a lot, uh, I, and the Pentagon hasn't actually answered this question. I think what happened in these videos weren't what you've seen, it wasn't real. They were copied off of the 18, F-18 IR screen probably with some crude device, you know, cell, in more recent times, a cell phone camera, that kind of thing. Because if you look at them, they are very bad resolution. And I think what happened is somebody copied these things, held them for many years, and then released them, totally independent of the Pentagon. Uh, because when this whole thing started, the Pentagon had to go find these things because they had never looked at them. DIA had never looked at these things and they started popping up on the web and of course with the article and then they had to go find them because they had never done any analysis of it. So that's probably what, they probably are real. They just are total misinterpretations of what they're seeing. There's no range data on there, so they don't know how far away they are. If you don't know how far away they are, you can't make any other estimations. The one go fast video, it's obvious an object 
below the aircraft because the airplane is pointed down at the ocean very steeply and it's moving. And of course, one of the problems is you see the objects shoot off the screen. If you've ever seen all three of them, it shoots off the screen like it's really going fast. But what happens is the gimbal kept moving and it reached the end of its travel and stopped. And so it's not tracking anymore. So the object just flies away because the camera's not tracking it anymore. Actually, uh, my questions were on those videos as well. Um, and you kind of covered kind of what I was interested in that the third video with the balloon, what cued you in that it was an actual a balloon as opposed to it's know, the size and angle of it in the parallax. I've been doing this a very long time. I'm I, I got into image processing because of this. I've created hoaxed UFOs that you cannot tell that they're a hoax because I know how to do it. Because I wanted to know what people could try to do. Fortunately, most people don't have the skills to do this, so it doesn't happen very often where you get a really good hoax photograph. So I've I recognize all this and I've been involved with imaging. I've uh, taken over a million images in the night sky in my astronomical research and discovered a number of things, but, but I've also done a lot of visual observing in the sky. Do we have any other questions from the audience? Let me give one last check on Zoom. Oh, there's something here in the Zoom. Has Major McGahey ever heard of Stanley Friedman? Any anecdotes to share? Stan, Stan Friedman? Friedman, yeah. Yes, I've heard of Stanley Friedman. Uh, I didn't mention him tonight. He passed away about a year and a half ago. He was a very, he was a, he actually was in graduate school with Carl Sagan at University of Chicago. He got a master's degree in physics and then became a UFO advocate and made a living by going around the universities in the United States, even though he lived in Canada, uh, lecturing on UFOs and getting student unions to pay him four or $5,000 for a lecture, which was nothing but 35 millimeter slides of blacked out data he had acquired over the years of uh, freedom of information articles uh, in the intel community, because what happens is, let's say you have someone report something and they say the word UFO in it. it has nothing to do with UFOs, but happens to be in this uh, classified document. Well, if you say, I want everything with UFOs in it, he would get sent these thousands, hundreds of thousands of documents that might have this and the whole thing's blacked out except for the one word UFO. And he got all upset and thought the government was involved in big conspiracy theories. I debated him at University of Tennessee one time, and he was not very happy with the debate because he would lament for the rest of his life that I was the only one who would ever beat him in a debate. So uh, yes, I know Stanton Freeman. <laughs> all right, I'd like to remind everyone, by the way, thank you for coming out this evening. Bad news is that it got cloudy again. So the telescope is not open for public viewing. However, if you were not here two weeks ago, feel free to walk in the ground floor of the old observatory building. By the way, that building's 100 years old now, it was opened in 1921. Uh, we are turning what used to be the lobby of the observatory into a visitor center slash museum. And we've uh, opened up the original front door. We haven't opened it all the way, but you can see the old front door from the inside. And we have a mock-up of Professor Douglas's office. We also have some displays of some historical uh, equipment. If you didn't get to see it two weeks ago, feel free to go over. The lights are on, the door's unlocked to go in the ground floor to see that. Two weeks from tonight is October the 11th. Regents Professor Marsha Riki, you heard from her husband two weeks ago. She's gonna be here to continue our series of public lectures on the James Webb Space Telescope. She's gonna talk about how the telescope was built since she was involved in the construction 
of the telescope, especially the instrumentation. So that's two weeks from tonight, October 11th, Professor Marsha Riki, James Webb Space Telescope. Feel free to look at the ground floor of the old observatory building. And let's thank Major McGehee one more time. Oh, that's so long. I should say that through the pandemic, and of course, all kinds of weird things happen. Um, I had discovered some asteroids and I was gonna make an announcement, but it didn't, because they did away with the public evening, that I named an asteroid after Tom Fleming. Uh, so uh, I was happy to do it. <laughs> yeah, there's an asteroid out there now called Thomas A. Fleming. So, <laughs> wow, thank you. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Good night. What? Well-deserved. Excellent presentation.